I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you along today. Here's a recipe for a combustible situation. Take a deep, codependent friendship, mix in jealousy, control, insecurity, and marriage. Dunk it all in a soup of whiskey and wine and watch the sparks fly. Those are the ingredients in Ore Egbaji Williams' new novel, as it unfolds on a single afternoon and delves into questions of how love and loyalty shape our lives. The novel is titled The Three of Us. Ori joins us from London. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And what a great introduction. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a lot to talk about. Okay, so... (laughs) I read an article a few years ago, maybe you, maybe you saw it, by Rebecca Traster. She write, wrote about female friendship, and your novel put me so much in mind of some of the things that she said that I dug it up, and I, I wanted to read you uh, just a couple graphs from what she wrote in the New York Times about friendship among women. Among the largely unacknowledged truths of contemporary female life is that women's foundational relationships are as likely to be with one another as they are with the romantic partners who we're told are supposed to complete us. I mean, I just got the sense that all of that was in the mix as you started Mm. to, you know, conceive of this novel. So tell me about that. Yeah, I loved the idea of sort of playing, um, particularly with things that, you know, my friends and I have talked about, but also that we see uh, on in books as well, but also on, on TV and in films. And this idea that being, this very prevalent idea, particularly that we get sort of almost shoved down our throats in the media that, you know, being single, people feel sorry for you, but, you know, being, um, being friends with some or being in a romantic relationship is super important. But then looking at the other idea of it, which is that actually sometimes you have those friendships that do for you what romantic relationships do for you. And what can happen when those two things are competing against each other and um, you either do something about it or you don't. And in this case, what you don't do about it and how you kind of let the chips fall where they may and what they do is fall into a vat of wine um, and huge arguments. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess the question is whether that friendship that maybe you've cultivated and maintained through a lot of uh, formative parts of your life is you know, is generous enough, is nimble enough to let other people into it. And and I think that's the thing that, you know, if you have close friends that go deep into your life and you're changing and they're changing, that's really the question. How flexible, how nimble is that friendship as as your lives change and new people enter your lives? Yeah, it's really difficult, especially because I'm now in a place where a lot of my friends are getting married and having children. And the thing that I think I'm stressing about the most is um, whether or not I'm supposed to remember their kids' birthdays, you know, in addition to remembering their birthdays and do they need presents. Um, but I think it's 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 definitely something that we're having to navigate as people and in, in, in our friendships that, you know, sometimes you have a friendship and it lasts years and years and years and suddenly you just, well, not suddenly, but over the years you start to grow apart um and mm-hmm. I was talking to someone about this the other day whether or not you know sometimes you hold on to those friendships because perhaps it's more the, the idea of having the friendship that's important to you as opposed to the person themselves um 
and which one is actually of importance to you and what you're willing to do to hold on to that because it feels like such a staple in your life and losing that kind of puts you off balance. Um, and so I kind of wanted to explore what happens when when both of them are willing to let go, but one of them has something else to fall back on if the friendship ends and the other person doesn't. You know, I really love the way you put that because in some ways you're asking yourself, am I the kind of person who who lets go of someone that was very important to me for 20-something years? Mm. Um, or am I the kind of person who says, hey, in some ways friendships are seasonal? And I don't mm. mean that in a year-to-year, -year, but different seasons of your life. I mean, there's a real identity question. I, I think I, I began to wrestle with this idea that um, friendships have seasons and they are super important in the moment, in the season that they're important. Yeah. And there's really nothing lacking in someone if that season has turned and, you know, and that friendship has has not ended but kind of withered in a way mm. yeah I think we we see friendships um especially when we're younger as these immovable um omniscient mm. things that they will always be there and to fail at a friendship almost sometimes can feel like you failed as a person it's like someone doesn't like me anymore or someone doesn't want to talk to me or be around me it's like what have I done to to make that happen um whereas with romantic relationships it feels really clear or very normal for those kinds of things to end um but for friendship that that seems like it's on even more of a personal level so um the idea of those things falling apart can feel devastating or it can feel like it's it's very very personal and i think some, perhaps though we've evolved a lot as humans maybe we haven't evolved past that idea that sometimes those friendships do end and it's nothing to do with anything anyone's done wrong. It's just that people change and they grow. And sometimes cliche as it is, they grow in very different directions, but um, we're not all necessarily uh, emotionally equipped to handle that. Yeah, that is such a great observation. And I've never really thought about it that way. When romantic relationships end, you know, even though it can be painful, there's an there's like a cultural acceptance. Well, that person just wasn't right for you. Most people would not say that about a friendship. It looks from the outside like there's something lacking in you or or the person that drifted away from the friendship. I wonder why. Why the difference? I think I think it's because sometimes friendships seem effortless that you don't necessarily have to put m mm. too much effort into them because we have so many ways to connect with people, whether it's via FaceTime or via text message or whatever it is, or social media, there seems to be so many ways to connect. And a lot of us have those friendships that seem effortless or friendships where we don't see people for six, seven months of the year. And when we see them, it's like nothing's changed. But with romantic relationships, there's there's very much an emphasis on maintaining them and going to couples therapy or, you know, making sure you have date nights and things like that. But we don't put that kind of maintenance into friendships because we, we make it seem like they're easy. But friendships are hard work. Um, and maintaining them and growing them and um, even learning how to resolve situations as you as you grow and become different people, as your lives change, as you as different people enter your life. Um, but I think also because friendships are seen as something that everybody has as opposed to something that just mm -hmm. one person has. Um, whereas 
some people are like, oh, you know, I'm single and that's just what I choose to be or that's just the way life is. And we feel sorry for people when they're like that, but we don't consider people who don't have a lot of friends. We think that's so weird. If you don't have friends, we think there's something wrong with you, but you know, they're just as, <laughs> they're just as, um, they're just as difficult to maintain as relationships. Um, and there might be, there might be some that take, that feel like they take less effort because you've got a, a kind of shorthand with your friends. Um, but they're still hard and it's, it still definitely takes work. No, that, that's a really good point because there is a, I think there's a time in your life Maybe it's, I don't know, from the age of eight to maybe 18, when coming together in a friendship often feels really effortless, right? You're, just, you're in these places and you're very open to the idea of having friends. And even during college, I mean, college friendships are important and they feel a little, a little effortless, but, but then you get into a time in your life where that maintaining a friendship or starting a new one feels really deliberate and less natural. Mm. I mean, and I just recently formed a new friendship and I thought this is really unusual at this age, <laughs> at this place in my life to find somebody that I have this much in common with, which I, which mm. I kind of thought, well, you know, that time in my life is now I'm, I'm, accustomed to cultivating the friends I already have. I didn't think there'd be this kind of bond with a new woman friend at this time in my life. So what you're saying about cultivation and effortlessness, I feel like we've got this sense that it should always be effortless, right? Yeah. That's just, if it's a good friendship, that's how it is, right? Yeah. And it's, but it's not like in as much as right. it can feel certainly like it is, um, you know, like I, I learned even recently that I'm actually quite forgetful when it comes to things that my friends tell me. I'll remember ridiculous things that they say and I'll bring them up like <laughs> three months later. Um, but sometimes the important things like, you know, um, that their parent has this operation at some point, unless I put it in a calendar, I'm going to forget. And then I'll be talking with some other friends and someone will say, yeah, my mom had this operation. And I'm like, you never told me that. And they're like, yeah, I did. I told you like three times. <laughs> um, and we're still, you know, we're, we're still learning things about ourselves to this day. So even like then having to maintain friendships and remember things about people. And also we're learning about our friends and as much as we're learning about ourselves every single day. So having to work at that to understand those changes and mm. learn those different things about them, that definitely takes effort. Um, but we kind of, we've kind of removed that concept of putting the effort into friendships because everything about our films and TV shows, even, even in films where they show how friends meet, it's like, you know, they're just hanging out one day or someone's being bullied and someone stands up for them and that's it. And that's, it's like a, it's like a a fairy tale story. Um, and we don't, we don't necessarily look at the the middle parts. I feel like we look at the toxic part of friendship or we look at the really hunky dory part (laughs) of friendship and the the in between is is just kind of somewhere floating around that no one wants to speak about because it's so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Uh, okay, so the friends at the center of your novel uh, trace their relationship back to when they were le- uh, 11, which is, again, I think this time when your friends are everything to you and mm. the, you know, the depth of that friendship feels necessary and um, really intense. How else would you describe what has created the bond between the two women in the novel? I think it's, it's a, well, I think it's two things. I think it's a strength where someone lacks. Um, and I think it's a malleability where someone likes to mold. 
Um, and I say that the first one, particularly the, the sort of strength where someone lacks in that the wife, she is not a very outspoken person. She doesn't really stand up for herself. She um, kind of just does what she's told and she doesn't really argue with her parents or disagree or anything like that. Um, and her best friend, Temi, she is very much the opposite. She knows exactly how to stand up for herself. She knows what she thinks about everything. She is more than happy to tell anybody of any age or stature or anything. She's happy to tell them exactly what she thinks um, and give them all a piece of her mind. And so to the wife, that seems really attractive. She thinks this is something that I don't have that 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 my best, that this friend has. Um, and maybe I can become like her if I, um, if I, you know, if I do what she does, if I say what she says, that kind of thing. And then Temi, she is someone who believes that she has found the Holy Grail, like the key to life. And she wants to share it with someone. And that's her sort of by myself, for myself mantra. And in the wife, she sees someone who's malleable. Um, but she also, in a way, she probably sees the wife as someone that she can save, someone who can she can save from being this very quiet, timid, um, very quiet person who doesn't really have her own personality or her own thoughts. And so she said, I can mold her into someone who is like that. Um, and I am strong enough and big enough and everything enough for the two of us, if, if need be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think those are the kinds of things that draw those people together. And I think that's actually a really natural way that maybe we even find ourselves attracted to our friends. Um, Do you know, you? like my I best friend, whether you believe that. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, my best friend, Grace, I mean, she wasn't always like this, to be honest, but she's very understanding. Um, she's also, I, I think she's far nicer than me, even though we have the debate about that all the time. Um, <laughs> and she, you know, I could tell her, oh, this person's been so annoying. And she'd be like, oh, well, what, do you, what about what they're going through? And even though it irritates me in the moment, <laughs> I'm like, it's good that she's able to, she's able to be understanding to people and her first instinct is not anger and annoyance. Um, and I think, I think a lot of the time, sometimes, even if it's not something that we want to be, that we see in our friends, we see something that we like about them that maybe we don't do or we don't have. Um, like most of my friends are funnier than me and I, I love and respect that because it keeps me entertained. (laughs) So, um, I, I think we definitely do see, if not, not even necessarily as the initial attraction to our friends, but something, things that we definitely find in our friends that they have that we lack and that we think, oh, this is great. I want to be around this person because, you know, we're not around people because they're exactly the same as us necessarily. Um, there's usually something else that they bring that we really admire about them, whether that, whether that means that we want to be more like them in that aspect, or we just like being around someone who is like that. I definitely think um, there's an element of us being attracted to something in our friends. They have something that we really admire and that we like that we don't necessarily have or have in the same amounts. Yeah, that's really interesting. How old were you when you formed the friendship with your friend Grace? Ooh, I was 18. Yeah, I was 18. Okay. Mm-hmm. So because what you're describing, I think is really true as you're as you're saying this, I'm going down through my list of closest friends and thinking, I think when I formed these friendships, I thought there was more similarity between mm-hmm. us than kind of what you're saying, which is this, yeah. these puzzle pieces kind of fit together. But mm-hmm. now... I look back on that and I think I was clearly drawn to their personalities for the things they possess that I don't. But I don't think yeah. I understood that at all yeah. at the time. Do you think you understood that when, when you were forming the friendship with Grace? No, no, definitely not. Because um, this was at university, so we were just we were just trying to make friends, period. <laughs> 
um, yeah. just someone to be left behind or be alone. Um, and I think, I think, but also I think what you just said about your friends, uh, your closest friends when you were younger, you know, I clicked with her because we were similar. We were both Nigerian, you know, we both grew up in sort of similar-ish areas. Um, we both had older siblings, mm-hmm. specifically older sisters that we were close to. Um, we had that kind of dynamic going on. So we very much understood each other and we were able to sort of form a shorthand very quickly and just talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, but now, obviously, I know that there are things that she does and that she's able to do that I'm not able to do as well that I really admire about her. And I probably didn't see those things in the in the first instance, but perhaps my subconscious was like, yes, we need to, we need to be friends with this person. (laughs) (laughs) I need her in my life for all the things that (laughs) I'm maybe missing. (laughs) Who who do you think, who do you think was more motivated to make the friendship happen? You or Grace? Ooh, I'm going to say me. I think because I just, I really loved Mm. her energy. She just had this really fantastic positive generous just great energy um and I think that's probably probably how I decided I was like I need to be friends with her um yeah I think I think well I think to say we, we, we were equally um it, let's say let's, let's call it 60 40 um let's say 60 me 40 her um the only reason okay. I would say that is because um I think we'd all gone on a night out and then I messaged her to say oh should we go for like a coffee and have a little debrief of the night and then we sat there talking for like, I think maybe three hours and um, we went for this coffee. Um, wow. So I would attribute that 10% to me sending the text message, but I'm sure she would have sent it if I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my conversation with writer Ori Agbaje Williams. And we're talking about her new novel, The Three of Us. And you can hear as the conversation really takes off that at the center of this novel is this complicated friendship between these two friends who were, it seems like naturally drawn together when they were 11. Um, But as they've grown and developed, they've changed, but the friendship has remained pretty intense. And then a marriage enters the the situation. (laughs) And then this, it all comes to a head on one afternoon, whiskey soaked, wine soaked, which I think ends up being important because inhibitions have have dropped. And so we're going to talk about the conflict. We're talking about the nature of friendship. We're going to talk about the conflict that develops um, between between these characters. Uh, I, I'm curious, Ori, about um, the decision to let it unfold on one wine soaked uh, <laughs> afternoon. I mean. I, you know, I thought this would make a great play too, and I hope somebody makes it into a play. Um, <laughs> but but tell me a little bit about you know just being so. I mean, you set yourself some pretty firm parameters there mm. to to let this unfold. So so tell me about thinking about that. In the first instance, I don't think I knew it was going to be over the course of one day when I first started writing it, but I think when I realized that we were going to be just inside these characters' heads and it was going to be essentially three monologues, I thought to myself, how long could I possibly stand being in someone's head? Um, And therefore, how long would a reader possibly stand being in someone's head? And I thought one day is probably the limit. Um, I don't think I'd want to be in anyone's head for much longer than that. A, because you would probably 
you know, start to resent them. Um, but also because you probably get mm. a bit bored, you want to know what else is going on. But then I think it was also, and this was during the editorial process, thinking about building the tension. And my US editor, Sally Kim, she said something really important. She said, why does everything happen on this day? And that forced me to then obviously really think about why I'd made it over the course of one day. And then thinking about obviously the wine that's involved and sort of building this pressure cooker and thinking about all the different things in all the years past and all the different arguments past and sidelong glances and, you know, snide comments, all of those had built up to this. And so I thought, okay, this makes more sense. And I just need to build that tension toward this feel like it's almost bubbling. And then it's about to bubble over. It's about to go over the side of the pot and it's all about to come crashing down. Um, and I just thought that meant that the tension built a lot more, that people would sort of be more on tenterhooks and they would also be in their minds filling in the gaps of what else has happened in the preceding years and months that has brought them to this day and exactly how irritated and angry everybody is till they get to the point of the end of the book. Um, and I, I also just love like films and TV shows and things like that that happen over the course of one day. Um, I think those really give people a glimpse into how we spend our time um, and also, yeah, they just create that beautiful pressure cooker um, that means that when the tension is, is finally reached a boiling point, you know, that something kind of explosive is going to happen, but we just have to figure out exactly what it is. You know, I also thought that this is, um, it, it, it felt it felt a little dangerous for you because I thought at any point in the way this is unfolding on this one day, one of the characters could say, well, I'm not going to do this. Mm. You know, it could have been like the natural, where the reader is kind of expecting that one of the characters is going to step out and not and not bring this to the kind of explosive, you know, climax that it's headed for. You, you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you set yourself a pretty, I think, dangerous task <laughs> here to make everybody feel like, well... Now we're in it and we're staying in it and none of us are leaving because we've yeah. set this in motion. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I, th I think that's also what helps in terms of the fact that there had been other things that are mentioned in the book as to other instances where they'd made comments here and there and this had been happening and this had been happening. But I think also the whole concept of starting a family is what really means that mm. it's now or never for both of them because the husband wants to start a family the best friend is like, if they start family, it's game over. Um, I think that means that there's no backing down because one way or another, someone's not going to get what they want. And if they don't say something now, it's never going to, it's never going to happen for them. Um, so it's kind of that desperation as to clinging on to what they believe is the most important thing or what they think is best for the wife and that kind of thing. And I think it was, it was definitely dangerous, but I think because I knew how deeply flawed and perhaps selfish and, um, having this inability to say to stop themselves or to avoid conflict like they seem to although the husband avoids it the, the best friend kind of runs towards mm. it um it kind of can't be avoided and it's in his house so it's not like he has anywhere to escape to <laughs> um so yeah I think I, I think so you're right, right. It, it was it was dangerous but I think it was it was also fun to kind of also give you that those moments where you think okay it's all going to calm down like when she goes Tammy goes to buy some more wine you're like oh she's gone now maybe they can have a nice evening and right you know, that's and exactly what I thought and then it goes again <laughs> <laughs> okay it's just just so listeners can follow this the the person you're calling the wife is never named she's mm -hmm. one part of this intense 
triangle. Then there's Temi, the best friend. And then describe, um, you, you've told us a little bit about the nature of their friendship. Describe kind of the history of when the wife gets married and brings this third person into the triangle. So the third person, uh, well, she she's sort of on the periphery for the first few years of their relationship because Temi doesn't think the relationship is going to be anything significant. She thinks it's a fling. It's just like a, a little fun thing she's doing. And she herself is not one for really long monogamous relationships. But, you know, she's like, she's having her fun. I'll let her have her fun. She's got a man as a plaything, um, And that's fine for a little while. And then when um, it starts to become serious, she's a bit like, mm, I don't I don't like this situation. I didn't think that this was the kind of guy you were going to end up with, that kind of thing. So it kind of it kind of goes there. And then it's it's really when they're getting married and they're in the process of getting married that Temi really starts to enter the relationship and she's saying this is what he should say in his vows and this is what he should do and all this kind of stuff and she's not necessarily doing it out of the goodness of her heart she's doing it because she wants to let the husband know this is my town and you're just a guest in it um <laughs> and so <laughs> she she starts to infiltrate herself into that relationship in whichever way she can um, and then she, yeah, she very much makes her presence known and it becomes clear to the husband, um, probably before they're married, but then also after they get married, that this woman is going to be a constant presence in their life. And she's not just the friend, she's also their housemate. You know, I, I wondered if at the very beginning, Temi did have some altruistic, uh, impulses on, mm no, I know you well, and this guy is not, even though on paper the, the guy looked pretty great, and he mm -hmm. obviously really cares for the wife, but I, I wondered if it was always about control or, or whether there was some genuine, you know, deep love for the friend here in avoiding what she thought was going to be a mistake. I think it's both, but I, I definitely think there is there is that part of her that thinks this I think this is a mistake and that marriage is a mistake. And I think because also they've seen their mothers and how their mothers sort of um, would talk behind their father's backs about them. And they obviously weren't super happy in those relationships. And also from what she'd learned from staying with her aunt for a summer, who'd been married and then been divorced and that her aunt was living her very best life. Now that she was divorced, she was independent. Um, and the wife had also complained about, you know, oh, my parents tell me what to do. And this always happens to me and I never get to do what I want to do. And my life is mapped out. And so Temi believes that, you know, she's found a way to secure independence for them with that, with that sort of by myself, for myself mantra. And so once that's gone, um, or once that seems like it's about to disappear in the form of sort of getting married, Temi's like, I have to save this person. I have to save my friend. Um, but I think mm. perhaps the mistake she makes, um, depending on how you read the book, um, is that she doesn't necessarily ask the wife point blank is this something that you really want? Why are you doing this kind of thing? She's just like, she's decided that this is not for the wife. And so she's going to do whatever it takes to sort of save her friend. Um, and even though she hasn't asked her if she wants to be saved. <laughs> <laughs> have you had, have you had friendships that were changed by a marriage? I'm sure you didn't react the way Temi does, but have you oh experienced gosh, no. that? It sounds like you have. No, um, no, you haven't reacted like Temi, but... Oh, no, no, I haven't reacted like Temi, thank goodness, no. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if I have had friendships change because of marriage. I think perhaps friends that I would see more, I've seen less because they're married, you know. Mm -hmm. There's also, in as much as I want to see my friends, I also would love their marriages to succeed and, you know, for them to be happy. And 
I think it makes sense that when you're married, that's a that's a person that you then spend a lot more time with, and there's an element of privacy right. and sort of almost like uh, a sacredness to that to that marriage and that relationship and the time that you spend together. Um, particularly in the first few years of your marriage. Um, I don't, I, I, with some of my other friends, sometimes I would like say, oh, I'm coming over to yours to do this or something like that. I don't invite myself over to my friends who are married. I don't invite myself over to their home, to their homes because I feel like that's a, <laughs> that's a sacred space. Um, if I'm invited, I'm happy to go. But yeah, I think, I think they have changed, but certainly not um, in a negative way. Um, but I, I do know someone who, who, a friend of mine who has a close friend who, um, well, they're now married and I wish them the best, um, but the the husband, a lot of the friends actually don't think that the husband is a great guy. And mm-hmm. they, they, we had so many conversations about how she was supposed to trying to, they were trying to tell her, you know, this doesn't feel particularly right. Um, but sometimes there's also a thing where sometimes you can, you can only do so much to save a person. And sometimes someone has to right. save themselves from themselves. There's, there's no saving them. They have to kind of exactly go through right. the whole experience on their own. Um, but Temi's just not willing to let that happen. Although she kind of does, but she, it's, when it comes to the end game, she's like, no, I have to step in. <laughs> it's such a tenuous situation. I mean, I've had friends who are partnered with people that, uh, you know, just, didn't seem that like they were in it for the best, the best mm. purposes for the friend. And then, and then as the friend, you go through the whole thing of how vocal should I be about that? How should I let them? What if I say this about the partner and they end up together forever? You know, it's, mm. it's such a tenuous, complex decision about how to yeah. show up for your friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard and also trying to strike the right balance and then thinking, if I say something, will this end our friendship? If I don't say something, am I letting them right. fall into something yeah. terrible? Um, it's it's really trying to strike that balance and remembering that also these are these are grown people. These are grown adults. They pay taxes. Um, you know, they're going to have to figure life out <laughs> on their own at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the true measure of adulthood, you pay taxes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, All right. I'm going to ask you to read a short excerpt from each character, because as you've noted, the book unfolds in the point of view from each character. Uh, And I thought we could start with the voice. This is the wife, the unnamed. But tell me about that decision not to name her. I'm sure you've been asked about this. Why? Yeah. I think it's funny because I think a lot, in the first instance, people are like, was it deliberate? And in the first instance, it wasn't. Um, I just couldn't think of names that really matched up for them. And the book starts with Tammy, like <laughs> really? she's the first word I wrote. Um, and so uh. I thought to myself, oh, I don't know. I can't think of names for these people. And then what happened was as I was writing, I was discovering how infatuated with the concept of these roles of husband and wife these two people are. The husband mm. is very proud mm. to have a wife and say, my wife does this, my wife doesn't do this. And the, the wife is very happy to say, my husband allows me to do this. He provides this, da, 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 da. And the, the idea that perhaps they don't so much love each other as they love the roles and the, the sort of status that being together gives them. Um, and so it just yeah. made so much more sense then to say, okay, this person sees this as wife, this as husband. And then that for Temi, her friend is her friend and that there's a kind of almost an ownership there. This is my friend and that's why she's not named. And then it's my friend's husband. It's a point of separation. She doesn't even want to be linked to him. Um, so she's got mm-hmm. that, that her friend is sort of the, the one degree of separation from her. So she doesn't even have any connection to him at all. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Uh, beware of friends like Temi. Okay, so this is um, this is the in the voice of the of the wife uh, at the center of this triangle. What do you want to say anything else about the about the excerpt before we hear it? Um, I think we've almost kind of covered it, but it's it basically okay. covers uh, a bit of the dynamics, I suppose, between uh, the the husband and Temi, the best friend. That sounds good. Temi and my husband, though, have always had something odd between them. I didn't think that she would necessarily welcome him with open arms, but I didn't anticipate her reaction. She had strongly advocated for me to put myself out there at university, but when I told her I was going on a date with him a few weeks after the barbecue, her eyes flared open. I don't know, she said. We were in her childhood bedroom and I was sitting on the floor while she lay on her bed flipping through a textbook and pretending to have a photographic memory, instead of helping me to take my braids out like she had promised to do. She'd never had a serious boyfriend, at least not to my knowledge, but she seemed set against the idea, so I cancelled the date. Then I thought about why I'd cancelled it, and realised that the reason was Temmie's and not my own, and I was supposed to be making my own decisions per Temmie's instructions, so I went on the date. When I told Temmie that it had gone well, she winced. As I continued to see him, I thought their mutual animosity might peacefully cancel itself out. She unhappy with his entire existence, he displeased with her frequent presence in mine. As I imagined it, whenever they would walk into a room where the other was, they would exchange tight smiles and say, you good, yeah, you, yeah, good. And then they would agree that that was the extent of their conversations. I wasn't naive enough to picture them as best friends because I know that the way I interact with each of them is different. I like that time with Temi is fun and selfish and carefree and afterward I can return home to my husband, who is calm and unchallenging. That being said, I didn't expect them to be sworn enemies. That my husband would loudly exhale whenever he hears Temi's voice on the phone in the background, or sees her shoes in the hallway when he comes home. The new and creative ways Temi would find to insult my husband right in front of me, or bring up memories of our friendship from before I knew him, just to remind him that she's been in my life longer than he has. I started to really notice it right after I got engaged, and then it got worse during the wedding planning, when they argued a lot. About the song my husband and I would have our first dance to, about the cake tasting that she came to, about what she thought my husband should say in his vows to me. <laughs> the novel is titled The Three of Us. Um, you know, you know what was some of the most uncomfortable parts of the novel for me is when, and I think absolutely deliberate from you, is when... Temi makes fun or makes some pretty nasty observations about the husband and the wife snickers or lets it pass, never defends. I mean, she breaks mm -hmm. what I think marriage counselors would say is the first rule of marriage, which is protect it, protect mm -hmm. it against, you know, the slings and arrows that <laughs> will come at it. Um, I, I, I'm interested in how you thought about why she would be so tolerant of these pretty nasty things that the friend is saying about the husband, his character, you know, how he behaves. Yeah. I think there's an element of um, complicitness, but also fear. Some of the things mm. her friend says, probably the, the lighter things she agrees with. Um, but there's also an element of not wanting to displease Temi, this person who, showed her how to be free, who took her under her wing, who tried to help her find a voice, that kind of thing, who helped her to get out of the clutches of her parents. 
and the idea of losing her and not having her there anymore or having someone as a sort of a link to this other world that she's not in anymore as this single independent woman who doesn't need anybody kind of thing. Um, and I think there's also an element of complicitness because, you know, her not saying anything, it spices things up a little bit, you know, in, in the house, it gives the, her a bit of entertainment. Her husband hears what Temi says, doesn't like it, is waiting for her to respond. She doesn't. So he steps in. It kind of creates a bit of chaos, a bit of drama in what for her, though it's a very comfortable life, it's not a very exciting one. Um, and I think mm-hmm. so that sort of element of fear of losing Temi if she if she challenges her or sells her not to say anything. And then the also the idea that it kind of makes her evenings and her days more interesting. I think those are those are the reasons why she sort of doesn't do anything about it. I mean, I mean, so she in some ways she kind of likes to unleash the the you know the chaos a little bit, even if it's mm-hmm. going to end up being painful to the yeah. man she's supposed to love, and that she's going to presumably have children with. I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's it's one thing, I think, as somebody who's been married for a long time, to criticize your partner. It's another thing to have somebody else yeah. criticize your partner, right? And yeah. I just don't know anybody, I think, that would react the way this wife reacts. And yet the the reason you're describing, it makes a lot of sense. She's mm. She's really passive and kind of yeah. subversive in a way. But she also she's also a little bit manipulative because she gets the best yeah. of both worlds. When her husband complains about Temi, she doesn't say anything. When Temi complains about her husband, she doesn't say anything. Um, and, you know, she just kind of lets the chips fall where they may so she can kind of absolve herself of any wrongdoing. And she'd be like, well, it's between the two of you. And she gets to keep them both around. So she she's a little bit manipulative in that way, um, especially because she knows, well, whether or not she knows or she she's somewhat aware of the idea that um, they both don't want to be without her. So they're, they're happy to sort of maintain the situation up until the day of the book um, in order to both mm-hmm. have her in their lives. Mm. Yeah, she's kind of a jerk. But but we also understand <laughs> why, why yeah. she is doing, because you've given us background into her life. This is the other thing I wanted to talk to you about. There's there's some wry, but I think I would say pointed commentary on Nigerian culture. Um, you're showing us how idolized sons are. I've read that in other novels that come out of Nigeria. I didn't know this, how marriage can even eclipse professional accomplishment for girls in the eyes of their parents. Mm. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> how much pressure there is to produce grandchildren. Tell me a little yeah. more about this. The grandchildren one is honestly, it's one of the worst ones. <laughs> thankfully, um, my parents are, yeah, thankfully my parents are nothing like the parents in the book, but, um, and wow. some Nigerian parents I, I've heard of or known, but it can be that the day you get married, your father's doing a speech at the wedding and he's talking about how many grandchildren you're going to have. Um, and you've literally just signed your wedding certificate. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's honestly so bizarre. And, you know, um, it, it's interesting because in, in some ways it's a very modern thinking that, you know, you should be married, but you should also have a job. Um, you shouldn't just be sitting around yeah, the house. And yeah. so if you're not, yeah, that's, that's not right. good. But equally, they're still expecting you to produce grandchildren. And if you don't, that's an issue. And you being single, it's raising red flags. We're wondering what's wrong with you. We're feeling sorry for you. Um, you know, we're thinking, are you okay? Um, 
And it's, it's very strange. It's, it's very contradictory. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's modern in some ways, and then it's entirely patriarchal um, and very old school in others. Um, but yeah, in, in some cases, you know, if you, you can have a fantastic job, you can be head of whatever company and they'll be like, well, you're not married and, you know, you're, you're coming close to your 40s. And it's like, well, that's OK. I have a great life and I'm doing fine. <laughs> OK, so this is what I'm curious about. So you, you said your parents are not like this. You're single. Yeah. You're very accomplished. Yeah. What happens when you're around your parents' friends? The, the fr- their friends from who have Nigerian um, history. I mean, do you think that the friends kind of quietly whisper, oh, she had that novel come out and she has this great gig and look how happy she looks, but she's really not that happy because she's not yeah. married. <laughs> um, that's a great question. I should ask. Well, mm, I'm going to say yes and no because they – a lot of the thing is Nigerians, sometimes they will talk behind your back, but they're also very happy to say things to your face. Um, so <laughs> nice. I've never had the two conversations be exactly the same. Like I've never had them say, oh, well done about your book. And oh, but where's your husband kind of thing. But um, mm. I've had them separately. So some, some of the same people who say, oh, congratulations about your book. Then they'll see me at a cousin's wedding and be like, it's your turn next. And I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be <laughs> like <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I should oh hope gosh. not. At least the ones, the ones that I'm, I'm close with, like aunts and uncles and friends and family and things like that. Um, you know, they mention it here and there, but it's, it's not. Thankfully, I think they know that them mentioning it isn't going to change anything. So they probably know just to leave it alone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many, how many modern Nigerian women never marry? Is that still fairly unusual? No, I think there's actually quite a lot. Or those who marry a lot later in life um, and Mm -hmm. who sort of do their whole career thing first and then they find someone later in life. Or I think they're having a a few more, although it's not very common, a lot more, some some more Nigerian women who don't marry but have partners or things like that. And, you know, it's it's becoming becoming, uh, more, you're seeing more and more of it, but not, I wouldn't say it's super common. Um, I think particularly mm, okay. for those who were born and raised in Nigeria, even if they do come over to the UK or to the US, um, there's still that, that that sort of cultural anchor dragging us back home thinking, oh gosh, what am I going to do? You could be you could be in your 60s and thinking, if I do this, what's my mother going to say? Like, you know, those, those thoughts still <laughs> sit in your mind, your parents, your parents kind of loom over you, um, sometimes in a very positive uh, way and sometimes in a slightly daunting way. <laughs> No, that I don't think that's only in Nigeria. Or I, I mean, <laughs> I still think if I tell my mother this, am I going to have to listen to this, or should I just not tell her what she doesn't know? Won't hurt her. Uh, okay, so second excerpt here, um, and this is in the voice of the wife's husband. And at one point, uh, j- just so our our listeners have the vibe here, at one point he says. Um, I expected to live with one woman when I got married. Apparently, I live with two. Uh, and he's, <laughs> he's reflecting on, on kind of the character of the marriage. Say anything else you want to, again, if, if you'd like. I think you've, you've nailed that perfectly. <laughs> okay. All right. Our marriage isn't perfect, but it's better than most. We know what the other likes and doesn't like. We know when we are annoying each other and need space. We know that sometimes we will both act irrationally and that at all times, one of us needs to decide to be the rational one. We know that shouting doesn't help. Thankfully, my wife is not a loud or shouty person. 
and I can appreciate how lucky I am. I have a good job, a lovely home, a beautiful, reasonable and understanding wife, and soon a child to make us a family. But marriages are usually made up of two people, whereas I feel as though I am married to three different women. One, of course, is my wife, the woman I legally decided to marry on purpose. The second is my wife's best friend, who is forever in our house. Her presence usually involves a few jokes at my expense, but also one or two bizarre compliments about how I look tall today, how I look like I got dressed in daylight, or a question as to where the various rare animals I killed and sacrificed in order to cast the spell that made my wife fall in love with me are buried. Then there's the third woman, (laughs) the one that I see when we've all had a bit to drink and my wife's friend has elevated the level of her insults and my wife is laughing at them and whispering with her best friend right in front of me. The third woman is completely detached from the person that I recited my vows to. You're listening to uh, an excerpt from a novel called The Three of Us by Ori Agbaje Williams, and uh, we're in conversation about it. Uh, You know, he, this husband, he kind of lives in this cloud of confusion, but I think (laughs) as the reader, you think, dude, you could have seen this coming. I mean, you missed... (laughs) Your little life that you think you're in control, you know, he, uh, okay, talk to me a little bit about constructing that, I don't understand how I got here kind of perspective (laughs) that he has. (laughs) I think the husband is, oh, how how is the best way to describe him? He is delusional. Um, It's probably the easiest way to describe Mm, himself. Yeah, yeah, good. He's delusional because he's crafted this image of the life that he should have. And he believes that the only, for the most part, he believes that the only um, issue with that is that it's his wife and her best friend or her wife's best friend and how her best friend makes his wife behave. Um, Not thinking that my wife might have a mind of her own. um, And it's not necessarily just to do with her best friend that perhaps she plays a part in this. Because he's always telling the wife, well, if you just say this to Tammy, then she won't come over. And if you don't do this, then maybe she won't do this. And if you change the locks, then maybe she won't come over anymore. Um, But actually, he's not necessarily looking at at his wife and perhaps who she is or who she wants to be or who she used to be and how that plays a part in who she is now. Um, And that that then goes to also, again, the thing about them not being named and the fact that he just sees her as a wife, specifically his wife and how she how she exists in his world that he's created and that he believes he is the, um, the creator of, and, you know, the ruler of, you know, how he talks about in the book, he mentioned, you know, in the house that I paid for in the mortgage that I pay and all this in the bed that I paid for Mm. all this kind of stuff. He kind of believes that that gives him ownership over things. And that level of um, being delusional is kind of, I think what gets him in this, in this place, because he thinks that things should just be a certain way because that's the way they're meant to be. And that's how he sees them but he doesn't look beyond those things and what they really are or what they, they may have been in, in the past. And so he now finds himself wrapped up in this situation where um, he's almost a, a prisoner um, in his own home and the birth yeah. of a joke. Yeah. There, there's something about um, his delusion that absolves him of any kind of responsibility. I mean, this is why I said, you could have seen this coming a mile away, and yet you put a lot of things in motion. But but then he and his wife never really, I, I think this is true, they never really have what I would think of as a come-to-Jesus conversation between themselves, <laughs> it sounds like. Mm. They, they haven't done that, right? Without yeah. Temi involved. Yeah. yeah. There's the thing he says to her about, you know, 
they had that conversation where he's saying, you know, you need to tell her that she can't come over as much anymore and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but, yeah, and she's kind of like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But it's, there's no conviction in her, in her words. Um, there's no intention in her words. She's just placating him so that they can get to the end of their lunch and she can go home and maybe call her friend. <laughs> yeah. And tell her all the, everything that happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. One, one last excerpt here. And this is from Temi, right. And her motives. Yep. Uh, yeah. are becoming pretty clear what she really wants. What else would you say? Yeah, and it's kind of it kind of goes to at the heart of perhaps her motivations and or what she believes her motivations are really. So it's kind of how she wants herself to be perceived and her righteous cause, so to speak. Look, all good things come to an end. Good films, good food, good clothes, good books, good friendships below average marriages. Whilst to some I may be desecrating the sanctity of marriage, though I doubt the sanctity of marriage still exists because, I mean, look at the divorce rates. I truly believe that at the end of all this, both my friend and her husband will be happier. He will see that the woman he married is simply an apparition of the person she thought she had to become. And she will see that the life we planned for ourselves is truly the one she wants. This man, my friend, this marriage was never going to last. Ultimately, I think she knows that. I think that maybe she's been waiting all this time for me to save her again, like I did that day in the changing room at school. But I think she sat too comfortably on the periphery for longer than is fair. You know what I wondered at this point was whether Temi might just be contemptuous of her friend if she got her way. You know, if her friend mm. actually did break up the marriage. I mean... You know people like that who they're 100% focused on something, getting somebody to do something, and then when they do it, the person's kind of contemptuous that they were able to talk them into doing it? Yeah. What, what yeah. do you think? Yeah, I think I think she, she, she didn't see this going this far in the first place. And so the fact that it's even gotten to this place is, is a little... Um, well, it's not a little, it's a very uh, confusing and upsetting for her. <laughs> and you mean that the, think, that the marriage has survived and now they're yeah. talking about having a child? Yeah. Exactly, okay. that it's gone this far. And I think also because she she credits herself for, for sort of bringing the wife to this stage in the first place, the stage where she was able to even perhaps be in a relationship or be able to give her an opinion and hold her own against another man. Um, and she thinks, you know what, this is, this is, this has perhaps gone too far. Um, but again, I think there's a, there's a part of her, I think there, I think all three characters are delusional to be honest, but I think in Temi's case, <clears throat> she's delusional in that she's convinced herself perhaps that there is a, there is a good reason that she's doing this and that she's doing it, you know, to save her friend from this prison of a marriage and this terrible life that she's living. Um, whereas, you know, perhaps there is a part of her that thinks, this is this is a this is a very sheltered, protected life. But you know, it's a life, and she's got someone. Um, but she's my someone, so she can't be somebody else's someone. She needs to be my someone. And there's a part of her that's sort of fighting to to keep that, um, as opposed to necessarily just looking out for the interests of her friend. Yeah, uh, we started the conversation, Ori, by talking about um, friendship, kind of the quality of female friendship, and I talked about that piece that Rebecca Traster wrote, I was curious about whether, you know, in the time leading up to when you thought, 
okay, I've got the out, I've really got the idea of this novel and it's, and I'm going to really delve into the idea of friendship here. What were you reading? What have you read that has been influential in the way you think about friendship, particularly female friendship? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, Goodness, what have I read? I'm now just looking at my bookshelf and thinking, what's influenced me? The funny thing is, and perhaps this is a terrible and very um, ridiculous way of looking at things, I actually try not to read uh, anything that's similar to my kind, what mm. kind of writing I like to write when I'm writing. Because I have this probably, mm. again, delusional uh, fear that I'm going to accidentally <laughs> plagiarise someone. Um, <laughs> so I actually try not to read too much <laughs> of anything that's similar to um things I really like but I do think that um in terms of it's not even necessarily friendship between two women to be honest um or friendship but just relationships I love the very mm-hmm. fractured way that Ayobami Adebayo writes about um relationships and how fractured they are specifically in her first novel um Stay With Me I thought that was fantastic the way that she did that um, I would be remiss to say that I'm not influenced by um, Curtis Sittenfeld and Sally Rooney because of the humour that they mm-hmm. infuse into their into their books um, and into the relationships, and particularly with Sally Rooney, the the lack of communication. Um, I, I've said this so many times now, but I think that she's actually on a mission to tell us that if we were just to be able to communicate better, our lives would be vastly improved. None of her characters know how to communicate yeah. properly, and that's why they get themselves <laughs> into these so horrible true. messes. <laughs> and... Um, I think were they to were they just to stop and talk to one another, they would find that actually they could probably resolve all their issues. And I think that communication yeah. thing it, it kind of comes out again here because we see what we want people we, well we see what people want us to see and we deliver to people what we want other people to see. Anything left in between, we don't want them to know because either we think it's bad or something like that. And I think um, I think those kinds of stories have really sort of really piqued my interest in thinking about how relationships between characters can evolve or um or regress in fact um and i think those those writers are really 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 good at that and really just great at making you look at things differently um and making you feel emotionally invested in a story as well like i know that i react viscerally to their characters and i get annoyed at them and then i'm like whoa calm down it's a book it's a book (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, you can tell I was invested in, in the characters in your novel, so <laughs> mission accomplished. Ori, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.